Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. no rhyme at the start of this episode because it's another special. Earlier on in the series, we had Ian Mortimer on talking us through everyday life in the Middle Ages. And for this episode, I'm delighted to say that I have as my guest an award-winning historian, author and broadcaster, the wonderful Susanna Lipscomb, to give us an overview of how things changed with the Tudors. Now, Susanna has written several books about the period, including A Visitor's Companion to Tudor England. She's also Professor Emerita at the University of Roehampton, a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society and a columnist for History Today. And as if that wasn't enough, she's also presented numerous TV history series and is the host of Not Just the Tudors podcast. Hello, Susanna. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. It is a delight to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Good. Now, I have to say, I'm most jealous that you've written a Ladybird book. <laughs> Uh, I've t- I've talked a lot about the Ladybird books, which I read as a child and were in many ways my introduction to history. And they've been revived in the last few years, haven't they? And you've written one of the Ladybird expert books about witchcraft. Yes. So this is intended for adults, I ought to say, where I talk about why people were accused of witchcraft, largely in the 16th and 17th centuries, and you know why they confessed. And why did they? To save people having to buy the book. <laughs> um, in a nutshell, torture. Although some people confessed because they genuinely thought themselves to be witches. So the vast majority of people who were accused of witchcraft in this period were innocent people who you know, didn't do anything wrong, probably were poorer than those accusing them. That's about it. But there were some people who thought they could use magic to harm their neighbours or to kill a cow or something like that. Mm. So they weren't really witches. Exactly. <laughs> witches in inverted commas is the way we need to talk about them. They, they weren't really witches at all. That's, that's part of the problem. King James gets a lot of blame for the sort of witchcraft hysteria, but he, he seems to have only really believed in it for a couple of years. And so he should really, because he did write a book called Demonology, which mm. 
was a kind of guide to how to find and exterminate witches. So he might have only been interested for a few years, but he yeah, sets but it, up it started. everyone else's interest. Yeah. Yes. And he does pass an act in when he becomes king of England, he pass a new act about witchcraft which makes the conjuring of evil spirits uh, a crime punishable by death. So before that you had to actually do some harm with witchcraft, so it was right. You know, you had to kill or hurt or maim or something. So it's a, it's akin to another sort of crime. But then he actually makes the summoning of evil spirits treasonous, which is quite hard to prove, isn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, is, it, I mean, is there a political aspect to it? I mean, or is it an idea of like, this might be useful if I want to get rid of someone who I can't really prove have done anything? Well, he's already used it like that. But I think the political aspect is that he thinks himself to be king by divine right. right. And he found it kind of flattering that witches had attacked him before because it obviously showed what a true and virtuous man he was. So I think there's something about it upholding his position because he's the antipathy to witchcraft. Right. Well, we've jumped ahead of ourselves there. We've got into the Stuarts. Yeah. Um, so it gets back to the Tudors. Now, when I got in touch with you, did you think for a bit, I mean, do you sometimes get bored of talking about the bloody Tudors? I mean, maybe I should do, uh, but, but I think it's with anything. If you know a bit about it and then you add more and then you add more, mm. you sort of, you've got that framework in your mind and so you sort of always want to find out some of those little details you don't know. And actually, I find the Tudors therefore endlessly fascinating because I'm always going deeper, because I'm always finding out more things. So I think if you keep retelling the same stories, it becomes a bit dull. Yes. But actually, there's a lot more to tell. When I was talking to John Guy about Mary, Queen of Scots, you know, he he was sort of saying there's new stuff coming out all the time, new letters to be decoded or whatever, and that, uh, yes, there is fresh stuff still to uncover. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm working on a new history of Henry VIII's queens to be called The Six, and every time I tell someone, they say, is there anything <laughs> new to be said? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, there is. I've got loads of new things I've found. So there definitely are new things to be found, and, and, and John Guy's right, there's new discoveries happening all the time. And these things sometimes completely change our way of seeing, mm. the, you know, the people of the past. So I think that with the new technologies we now have, and also with the new perspectives that people have, so people are asking different questions of the past than, say, Victorian men writing about the Tudor period, we are finding a kind of new way of, of seeing the past. It's really an exciting time, actually. And are you kind of working at the rock face, as it were, are you going into these archives and finding stuff for yourself? Yes, I sort of wish I didn't insist quite so much on my own um, purity with regard to this. It would save me an awful lot of time. But as it as it goes, I do spend a lot of time in the archives and I find it completely revelatory because the way that we know mostly about the Tudor period is that we rely on some very important um, collated documents, state documents mm. that were calendared, i.e. put into chronological order in the 19th century. And so this is the summaries of these state documents and most people look at those. But if you go back behind those to the original documents, then you're finding the full version for a start in the fresh first person rather than the third person it's been turned into in the 19th century. And you're going back to things in their original languages. And strangely enough, of course, translations are not something that are fixed in stone. Something translated in the 19th century doesn't kind of feel fresh to us. But also there's loads of documents that just weren't translated, weren't mm. included in those things. So I'm finding that using 
uh, non-Anglophone sources and going back to the manuscripts. I mean, I've been to amazing archives in Vienna, for example, the stuff in Spain, the stuff in Paris. You know, it's a hard life. <laughs> and um, all of these things have stuff to tell us, new things to, to shed light on the period. I mean, I mean, presumably most of that is about what's going on at the heart of things. What evidence do we have, uh, documentation or whatever, of, of what what was going on for ordinary people at the bo- at the bottom of the food chain? Yes, so you're right. I mean, the vast majority of the sources from the period are going to be things like ambassadorial accounts mm. and royal correspondence and all that sort of stuff. But we have loads of evidence also about things to do with land, which is what people are living mm. on. And therefore, that gives us lots of evidence about people's circumstances. So this is a period where, this sounds dull, but bear with me, where there were really interesting changes in leasehold. And it's because people, the population is massively increasing in this period of time. So it dipped after the Black Death and it's slowly been rising. And then in the 16th century, it sort of (laughs) grows exponentially. So we know that the population of London, for example, is about 60,000 in 1524. And about two hundred thousand in sixteen hundred. Wow, that's and the, huge. And the pop, it's huge. And the population of of England has gone from about two point two million, we think, to about four million in the same period of time. What's driving that? The natural maths of an exponential growth. So the population's gradually been growing, and then you sort of get people just producing in large numbers. But are there are there improvements in sort of agriculture? No, nothing like that. In fact, it's it's sort of against all odds because infant mortality remains very high. Um, there are huge numbers of epidemics mm. during this period of time. There's regular periods of starvation because of poor harvests. But the thing that is happening is that um, because of this inflation, we find that people who are generally speaking been able to rent their little bit of land from their lord and pay the same low rent for years and years and years. Now, suddenly there's inflation and the lords are thinking, I think I could make a bit more money on this. And so they're chucking people out of this form of land holding called customary tenure and putting them on something which is contractual. This is the sort of leasehold we all know, where things go up Mm. year on year and everybody's shocked. So basically from the experience of most people living in this century, bread is getting more expensive land is getting more expensive, there's the creation of a landless labour force. So circumstances are getting worse, in short. Is that causing social unrest? It is. And there's numerous rebellions during this period of time. And we see, you know, riots in response to uh, things like enclosures. So there's enclosures at various points in history, but at this period of time, people are taking common land and enclosing it for use by animals as opposed to the poor. And that makes a real difference because if you're poor and you can take your cow and and graze it on the common land, or if you can forage berries or collect firewood, then that could be the difference between having enough and not having enough. But in this period of time, they're being enclosed and we see protests as a response to that. But the problem is with these protests is that it's treason. 
So mm. the risk of rising up against your Lord is really great. You're basically probably going to die as a result of doing it. So, you you know, taking your choices, how you how you want to be seen off, really. Does the dissolution of the monasteries impact on it? I mean, how much were the monks and the abbesses or whatever helping the poor and through charity and how much were they feeding on them like everyone else? It's absolutely crucial. I mean, it's devastating. And I don't think the full extent of this has really been researched because it's quite hard to find in the sources. Mm. So we have 800 religious houses across England that are closed. So they're absolutely everywhere. And they do provide welfare and they do provide medical care and even education and they close in four years and the consequence of that can be seen in things like the rise of the number of vagrants Mm. so there are increasingly harsh penalties for vagrancy or homelessness in the later part of the 16th century in 1547 under Edward it's ruled that a vagrant should be burnt through the gristle of the right ear with Uh, a hot iron one inch in diameter and they're whipped and you know these things are it's terrible treatment and it reflects an anxiety about this sense of people roaming around the country and causing damage and being criminal in other words because what they can't understand is that the that these people could be able-bodied and not find work. Mm. It's such an alien idea to them that there isn't enough work to go around. So, I mean, is that is that the sort of the birth of unemployment? I mean, has it been a slow movement to that or does it suddenly ramp up at this stage? It's a good question and I'm not sure we'd know, but I think it certainly grows disproportionately mm. at this time. And it certainly is the birth of the idea of the deserving and the undeserving poor, which is still with us. So they're deserving if they're a mother and they're burdened with small children or they're disabled and they can't work. But this large category of young men who are looking for work Mm. get called the undeserving poor because they're not in work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And there's no... Like, for instance, there's no real standing army that they can go and join up to or anything like that. No, no standing army. And there's no compensation for the loss of the monasteries. And there's no implementation of welfare until the poor laws, which are 75 years later. Right. So I'm now just going to say, did any institutions step up to kind of fill the gap of what the monasteries are doing? But you're saying not. 
Well, we see individual towns trying to introduce some sort of poor relief, but they're overwhelmed by the demand. And so they're, again, trying to distinguish between those to whom they should give money and, and those who ought to be earning money themselves. And and so then what happens historically with that? Does that just continue? Does it get worse? Does it get better? So I think the poor laws of 1601 help enormously. Um, but And we see essentially more urbanisation as a result mm. of this pack of people looking right. for work. So I think that's the consequence, really. It's the kind of growth of cities right, yeah. and a kind of change in social dynamics. That's one of the reasons for the massive growth of, of London that you mentioned. That must have necessitated a big building drive. And How much did it physically expand? So at first, it's just stuck within the medieval walls. Um, and so, you know, if you turn up in London in the late 16th century, you're passed through the village of Hoburn <laughs> and you go past St Giles on the fields, so-called because it's in the fields. <laughs> and and then you'll see the great walls of London up ahead of you at Newgate. And London itself is that small uh, one-mile square. Which is essentially now pretty much what we call the City of London. It's exactly that, yes. And so it's not south of the river, that's Southwark, <laughs> you know, it, and it's not even Westminster. I mean, Westminster's a separate um, town, a separate village right. to London itself. But this is changing. And so by the beginning of the 17th century, it's spilling out of its walls and creating suburbs around it and growing and getting more and more densely packed. A fun place to be or not? pretty smelly place to see I think um it was I mean it was where you know all life was there I always think it must have been so fascinating for them to turn up in London because at the time something like 95% of people lived in a community of around 400 people <laughs> and then you turn up in London and it's um Peter Lazlitt once wrote this wonderful book called The World We Have Lost, and he said it would have been in circumstances so much that our ancestors could barely believe <laughs> that they were human. You know, the, the houses above houses, um, uh, one on top of another, and um, crowding out the light in those narrow alleyways. There would be the big, beautiful streets like Cheapside, which had merchants' shops and um, sold things to the rich haberdashers and mercers and that sort of thing, goldsmiths. But for the vast majority of people, I don't think that London was particularly fun. I mm. think it was a hard place to get by. And would we recognise it working like a modern city? You know, restaurants, street food, obviously there are taverns, uh, you know, hotels equivalent. I mean, what are the similarities and what are the, what are the big differences? Yes, so taverns, quite a lot. Churches, at least as many. Um, not restaurants exactly, but places you could buy food, for sure, street food. Uh, and then certain quarters. So I've mentioned the goldsmiths and haberdashers on Cheapside. You go to St Paul's for books. You know, you go to Fish Lane. <laughs> Guess what? And so on and so forth. So there are different areas that would be, you know, sections you go for different markets on different days. I think entertainment would have been interesting. So people did travel south of the river, of course, to go mm. to the theatre from the in the late 16th century. Um, south, south because it was not restricted by the city authorities in the same way as it was within the city itself. 
but also there were minstrels and tumblers who were acrobats and people um, doing things in the streets for money, just as we see today. That must have got very irritating. I hate medieval films where there's always a bloody juggler and someone, you know, on stilts or something. (laughs) They get right up my nose. (laughs) So it always seems to be sort of shorthand for, oh, this is what happened in the olden days. But you're saying that that's a true reflection of what what it would be like out on the streets? It does seem that there were people like that on the streets, yeah. Uh, On that front, it it was Edward at his coronation. The thing he enjoyed most was the guy on the tightrope coming down from St Paul's. Yes, that's right. And we've also got wonderful stories of of that sort of thing. I mean, um, after Prince Arthur and Catherine of Aragon's wedding, for example, they have a Spanish acrobat who hangs by his feet. So Thank God we've now got Netflix to entertain us. But I guess uh, it's interesting, you were saying how traditional work patterns are changing through this period and that there's not enough manual work to really go around and that these young men are going to be looking for something else to do. So I guess more of them will be becoming musicians, actors, entertainers. I suppose if you've got some sort of (laughs) talent, you've got to make money somehow. There would have been a lot of beggars. There would have been a lot of people hoping for money from... Others, there would have been streets that were, of course, untarmacked, generally ungraveled, except when they needed to be uh, for some special occasion, muddy, lots of mud, lots of unwashed bodies. Quite an extraordinary place Mm. to be, yeah. You mentioned um, theatres, and obviously it's one of the things we all know from the Tudor period is the likes of Shakespeare. When were the first theatres built, purpose-built theatres, as it were. Something like 1562 is about the earliest So whose reign are we talking about there? In Elizabeth's reign, there are purpose-built theatres and they are either within the city itself or or just outside, I say, just to the south, or there are some in kind of um, north-east London, as we would call it today. Uh, And, you know, but the first plays are performed in taverns. So it's just we gradually see the the construction Mm. of these purpose-built playhouses. And what's interesting is that people go to the plays in the afternoon because there's no electric light or gas light. So you can't really have a play by candlelight except for um, in a much smaller numbers. For the vast majority of people, for their leisure time, is is going in the afternoon. I mean, would that be sort of across the board doing things? The idea of the sort of nine to five, is that... a is that a sort of more recent construct? Oh yes, I mean that's really that's really post industrialization nine to five. Right, it's a it's a factory idea. Um, well, it's, I mean the factories work them a lot harder than that, but it's subsequent to mm. reform. Um, and there were a lot more days off. There were a lot of holidays, so feast days up until the Reformation really were celebrated as a day off. Um, people did work six days a week otherwise but there were great occasions and just a much more of a sense of the natural rhythm of the year which followed the church year so whether you're Mm. fasting in Lent or or celebrating just before it and after it um, there was a sense of rhythm and ritual I suppose that we have a bit of you know we have it with Advent perhaps but it's not quite the same (laughs) thing (laughs) To get back to the theatre um Shakespeare in Love, the film, obviously, Andy Dench as Elizabeth, is sort of seen going to the theatre. Did did she frequent it? I mean, as, from, as far as I can tell, she was a bit of a patron, but she 
wasn't that interested in it all. Yes, that's the impression I get. I don't think we've got any evidence of her going to the theatre. I think the theatre came to her. Right. So players would come to perform at court. Lords did go. I mean, people of all status went to the theatre, but they tended to go to be seen as much right. as anything else. So the, the richest people would sit actually on the stage to be seen as much <laughs> as to see. And it's interesting that the, the Shakespeare plays sort of work on on two levels. There's a sort of posh French-based language stuff that's aimed at the lords who, I guess, are sitting there. And then there's the sort of uh, the more Saxon language aimed at the proles down below. Yes, and I always think there's a bit, you know, once you've had a serious bit, there's like, don't worry, don't worry, we've got something humorous coming. <laughs> Just hang on in there. And then we'll have a fight. Yes. And some yes. ghosts. <laughs> and the clown comes on. We all know Shakespeare and the lights of Christopher Marlowe, but I mean, there must have been lots of playwrights writing. How much of it has survived? Yes, quite a bit has survived that we don't pay that much attention to. People like John Lilly, for example. Um, there, are, you know, there are a whole host of other writers whose works have survived. It's all about historical accident, really. Mm. It depends whether they had a group of friends. You know, someone died. If they had a group of friends who were willing to publish what there had been performed, and the the, the fact of the matter is that most um, plays were performed and, and then we lose them. They're completely ephemeral. Like the early days of the BBC where they just wiped over all the tapes. It's like, well, we've done that. We're moving on now. Exactly. And so you needed someone to believe there was a reason to keep a record of it. So we have plays that show us that there were lots of plays, <laughs> but we don't have all of them. We, you know, we, we've got it's the tip of the iceberg, really. We famously don't know that much about Shakespeare, but... Are we able to judge at the time what his reputation was? I mean, was he at the time considered to be so much better than anyone else or was he just another playwright? That's a really good question. Um, I think by the end of his life, he was recognised to be superlative. I, I mean, at first, some people obviously liked his work, but he was con competing in a pretty full market. I mean, mm. it's a really thriving time for the theatre and maybe... You know, maybe people liked some of the more gory stuff or, you know, maybe maybe he's he had to change what he was doing to respond to the demands of that market. And we see him reusing, as we well know, stories that mm. other people have told and saying, well, you know, I can do it better. And I'm sure that's also a, a commercial decision. It's about drawing people in. I mean, we see it now, you know, mm. endless franchise <laughs> films. Yeah, the, the Hollywood remake. That's exactly it. So <laughs> that's what Shakespeare's doing. <laughs> takes time to build up a reputation, I'd say. So what about things like music? You know, we have this idea now, you go to a classical concert. Was, was I mean, I, obviously there were performances for the, the royals and that, but if you're an ordinary person, what's, what's your access to music going to yeah, be? Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, I mean, so if you're royal, you've got your minstrels and your trumpeters and your swarm players, kind of a form of oboe, you've got clerical music... I mean, one of the great changes in music in this period of time is the Reformation, because Latin music, which has been a central part of the mass for most people's experience, the sort of oral experience of church, is kind of done away with overnight and because the, the, mm. the mass moves into English. I think that we can imagine that there were basic instruments that would have been accessible to people of all classes, because if you think about you know, the possessions of those on the Mary Rose, for example, we get an amazing insight into 
life among ordinary men at least, and they do have a swarm and a sackbut and a violin, which suggests that we have, you know, fairly ordinary sailors who are in possession of these things. So we just have very little evidence about it. We need things like them surviving on the Merry Rose to know that that's mm. true. Otherwise, one could say to you, oh, it's only the rich who had them without anything to contradict it. I mean, are there any yeah. sort of equivalents to, to Canterbury Tales that give a glimpse into all levels of society? Are there any writings about that or do they tend to be on classical themes or historical themes? But, but is anyone writing about the life of ordinary people at all? So we have various surveys. I mean, John Stowe does a survey of England. He talks about ordinary people. We learn about, you know, a labourer who lives, who when he dies, leaves, you know, a cow, a bed and a few uh, basins and things like this or um, pots. And that's all that he has in the world. And you can get a sense of the totality mm. of of somebody's life. So we have people kind of doing... Surveys like that, John Leyland is another who's travelling um, and building up a kind of picture of what the country is like. And I suppose we see it a little bit in, in Shakespeare in, and in other playwrights yeah. who are trying to capture a sense of ordinary life in that fictionalised way. But it's not exactly the equivalent of the Canterbury Tales. I mean, over the channel, someone like Marguerite de Navarre is writing her Heptemeron, which is a, a series of short stories, um, you know, following Boccaccio. So it's a kind of a, a French answer to the Canterbury Tales. Oh, right. But, but we, I can't think of many equivalents at the time in the 16th century. By the time we get to the 17th century, we've got much more stuff like that. So we get many more uh, people who are writing about the experiences of ordinary people and who are writing things that we might think of as fiction as well. But the 16th century doesn't have much with regard to that outside the plays, I think. You touched upon it there, and, and it's one of the things talked to Ian Morton about the, in the, the Middle Ages, is that even rich people had very few possessions, things. Their houses weren't full of stuff, and if they moved from one dwelling to another, they had to take everything with them, including sometimes the windows. But I, I get the sense that as we get into the Tudor period, there is more of an interest in having paintings and books and furniture and stuff. Is that right? Do people start to have more possessions? At the top end of the society, then there's lots of possessions. Mm. Um, and interestingly, something like a tapestry is valued far more highly than a painting. So paintings haven't quite acquired that sort of value. Well, it has a dual purpose, I suppose. It uh, keeps you warm, keeps the exactly. damp out. And so they, but they do travel with people. So, you know, a very rich man might have fifty tapestries. Henry, of course, Henry VIII has sort of six hundred. But they move around wherever that nobleman goes, for example, and they're tremendously expensive. Uh, and they're used to indicate wealth as well as provide beneficial purposes yeah. of keeping warm, etc. And we do see, you know, an expansion in artisanal work. So whether that's craftsmanship by artisans who are making, um, you know, gold chalices or whether it's the leather or velvet covering of a book, we do see these beautiful possessions. And perhaps as printing comes in, we see the illuminated by hand manuscript books 
becoming even more desirable objects so that, that you can enforce that gap between those who just have the printed books and those who still have these incredible items of, you know, that are very expensive. So would wealthy people be commissioning them? Absolutely, yes. Commissioning them and commissioning... So there's one person who's writing the text. There are other people who are illuminating um, the books of hours, for example, and then you may have one or more illuminators working on that, someone else who's tooling the cover. And so it's passed from artist to artist and the book as a whole demonstrates that great investment of time by skilled artists. So is that work for ex-monks? I mean, what, what did all the monks do? Such a good question. Yes, it might well be the case, although... I don't know if if we've been able to identify them like that. The thing is, we just don't really know what ex-monks and nuns did. There's been some work on it recently, um, but it's really hard to trace them because they you know, get paid off and then disappear out of the historical sources, really. So somebody sent me a link because I got into a discussion about the merits of drinking whiskey. Uh, and... Somebody sent me a link to this guy doing a sort of whiskey tasting thing in a very flamboyant manner. And he said at one point, and I have no way of knowing if it's true, that a lot of monks went up to Scotland and they took their alcohol-making skills with them. And, and that was the birth of the Scottish whiskey distilling industry. Well, it's certainly possible. I don't think there is anybody who could say for certain where the monks went because yeah. we they're not the sort of people who leave behind a a documentary trail so they don't tend to leave wills because they don't believe in possessing things as a monks um you know they're not likely to come into conflict with the law so we're not going to see them appear in mm. the courts there's just so little evidence to trace an ordinary person through these through the 16th century do we know what sort of numbers how many monks were suddenly dispossessed? One estimate is 20,000, and that comes from a, an ambassador from the Holy Roman Empire, uh, Yusuf Shapwi, who's in England at the time. But he may have been exaggerating, it's hard to say. We've got, I mean, I suppose it probably could be calculated because we can see the payments made to um, the abbots and the, the various members of the house. But whether that's an accurate reflection of the number of monks, it's hard to know. Uh, so there's no, there was no census. No, there was certainly no census. We do get a really important innovation in 1538, though, which is the introduction of parish reg registers. So we suddenly have people's right. baptisms, their marriages and their funerals recorded. Before that, it's really hard to know when people are born, especially if they're women. So <laughs> we don't know for certain when Anne Boleyn was born. We don't know for certain when Catherine Howard was born, etc., because there were women and no one thought to write it down. And if you've got to provide that evidence, or at least you've got to have a baptism, it gives you some sort of purchase on when they might have been born. Mm. On that front, talking about women, all those pesky women that men wanted to get out of the way, they, they would send them off to a nunnery or whatever. Hamlet tries to do it with Desdemona. What, what's the equivalent of that now? Yes, yeah, so when we say the dissolution of the monasteries, we mean the, the monasteries and the nunneries at the same yeah. time. Yes, yeah, so all the houses were shut down. I mean, do we think that some nuns tried to recreate their lives as a community? But again, we've got very small amounts of evidence mm. about it. Probably end up being accused of being witches. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... Uh, 
what's the options? Um, well, uh, men can accuse women of being scolds by the end of the 16th century. That's coming in. So women who speak out of turn uh, are often accused of being scolds if they're cantankerous, if they have a- mm. opinions. I always think I would have ended up as a scold. Um, <laughs> Or there's obviously witchcraft, which we've talked about. And then there's also, um, this isn't really getting rid of a wife, but we do see the introduction of punishments for infanticide, which may seem like a fairly straightforward sort of thing, but actually it's a way of dealing with women having sex outside of marriage. So women get punished for infanticide in an age when infant mortality was very high if they're a single woman and they give birth and the baby dies. So mm. then that becomes a, a, you know, they can't prove that the baby died naturally, so therefore they must have murdered it, etc. And yet, you know, at the top end, we see the likes of, of Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth and Mary having very good educations and that being seen as important and uh, and suddenly we have women on the throne which which is a huge seismic shift it is a seismic change but you know mary lasts for only about five years and elizabeth the first is the margaret thatcher of the 16th century you know her own achievements do not mean that she's going to elevate any other women in society quite the opposite mm. she she likes to be thought of as an exception to the rule. It makes her special. But women, there did seem to be that they were taken more seriously and given more importance, you know, the very idea of educating them at at the top levels. Mm, There are certainly some who think that, and it's Elizabeth and Thomas More's educating his daughter. That sounds like a politician's answer. Well, some people might think that. Yeah, well, I mean, still by the end of the 16th century, maybe 5% of women could read and write. It's nothing. It's not radical. I mean, it's perhaps not that many more men, but certainly more men could. We have schools through this period. We do, Uh, uh, which are for boys. Just for boys? Yes, just for boys. And you you have to pay to go to school? How does it work? There are fees... um, but they're quite low. But still, to invest in a child's education is uh, is a commitment. The grammar schools are teaching the sort of education that is it's very good. I mean, though, you know, it's at the time it it's Latin and it's Greek as well as uh, as well as rhetoric and writing. So there's a sense that these people are being brought up to be functioning parts of society. But the vast majority of children are not receiving that sort of learning Uh, it is going to be mostly the elites and then the children of artisans who are doing well Uh, at the the lowest levels they can't really afford to keep children in schools or to send children to schools Mm. because they're needed um, to help out with the the work of the house and you know 75% of people thereabouts are involved in some sort of rural work even even those who live in cities quite often because the fields are right next to them. Mm. And so there's lots of jobs that children can do that help out with that. Uh, and what sort of numbers are going to university and what's it for, as it were? To what end would, would you send a, a son, obviously, to university? My instinct is it's very small. Uh, and generally speaking, you'd send a son to university. I mean, women can't get degrees until mm. the late 19th century, if early 20th century in some places. Um, so 
you would send a son because you wanted him to move up in the church or in the law. And those are two good routes to social advancement. So this is an age where there's quite a strict social hierarchy, but there are ways to game the system. And, and those are two of them. So is it more of a, of a middle class thing then rather than a upper class who are already, they already are the elite? It's tricky because our thought about class is so hmm. rooted in later centuries. So I think you might well have members of the aristocracy or the gentry spending some time at one of the universities. My instinct <laughs> is that I think it's probably more people who are going to be working who you know as right yeah um, as clerics or as lawyers who are seeking that sort of education yeah. thomas more thomas wolsey amongst them thomas cromwell i suppose that strata of administrators as you were must be a massively growing area i think so and it's because there are there are possibilities for them to rise so we find you know, in Wolsey, a butcher's son rising to become mm. the preeminent churchman and in the land and Lord Chancellor. It's extraordinary. And Cromwell, very similar. Exactly, and it shows what's possible. So we do see brilliant men rising through these routes and we do see the growth of a of kind of what will be the departments yeah. of state, particularly under Elizabeth, we see uh, the forerunners of the civil mm. service. So we do need, you know, secretaries and uh, people who can do the work, really. And then presumably they're being sent internationally, ambassadors and whatever. Yes. So we have um, some of the most brilliant people at court become ambassadors to Thomas Wyatt, the poet under Henry VIII, or Sir Francis Walsingham's later Elizabeth's spymaster. These people go abroad in service of king or queen. So people who are trusted, really, and who who have good brains are sent abroad. We've moved up to the top ends of society. We need to go back down to the bottom. <laughs> yeah, it's so easy to because because all the evidence d turns our attention towards them and, and the documentation. Yeah. So so for instance, you mentioned earlier there were different areas of London devoted to different activities, and and they would have different shops. Now I'm assuming there must have been a garment district, as it were, but but surely it wasn't like going into Uniqlo today and just getting stuff off hangers or or ordering it online. I mean, presumably. Peasants would have had their smocks or whatever, which would have been handmade and passed down from generation to generation and endlessly mended. But for most people, how did it work? Was most of their clothing tailor-made, their shoes? So generally speaking, you would have clothes made for you. Um, there may have been some that you could buy off the peg, but largely speaking, shoes are made for people to fit their feet and and. I mean, I think they'd slightly be horrified at the way that we <laughs> buy clothes. <laughs> and, you know, these things aren't made to fit you. What are you wearing them for? So people weren't lying in bed obsessing about their clothes and what people would think of them. I mean, they had other things to think about. I mean, what they believe is very, very different, as well as these sort of practical realities. But, but if we're thinking about the practical realities, it's things like the fact that, you know, starvation is a very real threat. Most people will have known a period of dearth at some point in their lives, if not multiple times in their lives, where they've gone hungry. Because when a harvest fails, the price of, of wheat, the price of bread shoots up and people starve. If two harvests fail, then it's 
mm. really serious. And in the 1590s, for example, 1593 and 1594, and then 96 and 97 are all terrible harvests. And, and you know, starvation is widespread. So that, I think, it feels like it's a really profound difference. There are people today who don't have enough food, even in, in the, you know, the global north. But the, the fact of the matter is that most of us don't go hungry for longer than an <laughs> afternoon. And they would have known something completely different, like epidemic disease. And we had a pandemic, but they had... The plague came back basically every 15 mm. years. And that's just one of a number of terrible diseases that were circulating at the time. So life was much more precarious, I think. Like The threat was much greater. Yeah, you're living alongside death. So obviously the church plays a big part in this. And one thing I've, I, I really struggled to kind of imagine what it was like is the whole idea of the Reformation, where suddenly you're being told that everything that you believe and that your parents believe and going back a thousand years is wrong. You're, you're doing it wrong. And if you carry on doing it like that, we can burn you. So that, how you suddenly think, oh, I've got to completely change the way I think about all that. And how you keep up with the changes as well, because it's not just one change. It's not like, okay, well, it's just this and now it's this. It's like Henry VIII introduces changes and then it changes again under Edward and it changes under Mary and it changes under Elizabeth and you get a headache just trying to keep up. So how would you uh, have dealt with that as just an ordinary person? Just keep your head down and turn up in church and see what happens? I think so. I think we, you know, people writing about this period often focus on those who are offering resistance mm. and, um, you know, think of them as sort of the great heroes of Catholicism, say, because they're hiding away mm. their goods and, and, you know, holding them on for the day when they can bring them out again, their church plate or whatever it is, the vestments. But the vast majority of people are just getting on with it. So, you know, you don't necessarily see that they are died in the war Protestants or recusant Catholics, they could, they might just be being paid to whitewash the wall that has the murals on and they need the money. You know, they're going along, they're conforming with it. And so I think that understanding that most people are just putting their heads down and getting on with it actually gives us a bit more of a sense of what's going on. People obey, mm. largely speaking. That's why the rebellions are such a big deal, because they're disobedience and therefore treason. Most people just do what they're told. So those rebellions... How many of the ordinary people got sucked into that? And would they have to just do what they're told because their Lord is rebelling? Or do we know if they're doing it because they believe in it or because they're being told? This has been exactly the question that historians have asked. Yeah. Um, so it, we think that there is quite a bit of initiative on the part of the lower orders. And it's not just because the Lord says, you know, get on with it, join the gang. The Pilgrimage of Grace is perhaps the biggest rebellion. So that happens in 1536. Somewhere between 30 and 50,000 people take up arms in Lincolnshire and Yorkshire. Mm. And it's a really serious existential threat to Henry VIII because he had maybe 9,000 troops he could call up because there's no standing army. So if it had come to battle, he would have been deposed. It doesn't come to battle because... They listen to the Duke of Norfolk, who's sent up there to tell them they'll get everything they want and they go home. A proper politician. <laughs> yes. And, and, and then Henry has loads of them strung up. 
So it's the use of force and it's the use of persuasion. But if they had wanted to dig deep, if they had known the possibility of what they could do with their numbers, they could have done all sorts of things. But actually what they're rebelling about is things like Henry being supreme head of the church. But also it's about things like Thomas Cromwell being one of the king's advisors because they think that he's low-born and therefore isn't <laughs> suitable to be next to the king. So, you know, they're so deeply entrenched in the sense of social hierarchy. They're, mm. they're, they're complicit in it. Complicated times. Now, you wrote your visitor's companion to Tudor, England, and obviously it must be every historian's private dream to actually be able to time travel and go back and see for yourselves what it was actually like. Would you like to go back and visit Tudor England or would you be scared that you might find out that everything you'd written was wrong? I think it'd be scary on all sorts of levels. I mean, I would like <laughs> yes. to go back and visit, but only if I knew I could come back. Otherwise, I mean, you've got to send me back with not only toothpaste, obviously, but you know, <laughs> antibiotics and <laughs> like painkillers um, and, you know, just all manner of things. I just don't know. I mean, hair dye, do I get that? I mean, did you know, there's <laughs> makeup. There's... No, I think, you'd, I think you'd be identified as a witch pretty quickly. <laughs> and I think the truth of the matter is that it was pretty grim. I think for most people, most of the time, I mean, you know, this is a period in which sugar is being introduced into the diet and obviously chiefly at the top end of the society because it's very expensive, but it gets less expensive over mm. the course of this century. And with that, we see the change of people's teeth. So the, the Museum of London has skulls from the late 15th century and skulls from the late 16th mm. century. And the difference between them is the late 15th century ones look like American teeth. and the late 16th century, <laughs> they've got these holes and abscesses. And just even that, yeah. that alone... British teeth. Toothache. <laughs> toothache before dentists. Yeah. Would have, you know, life would have been very painful, I think. But at least they brought in tobacco. That must have helped. <laughs> They did. There's lots of tobacco around by the end of the 16th century. Um, and that. also they don't really drink water. They drink beer. So you, they're slightly drunk all the time. Um, I don't know. You're making it sound better. <laughs> there were ways of getting through things. You say that, but I mean, I don't get a sense from the literature that has survived, the writing has survived. I don't really get a sense of, of massive doom and gloom of people saying, oh, my God, life is awful. I mean, obviously, there's, there's, there's quite a lot of that. But I mean, is it just because that's what life was? And so there's no point in complaining about it. So, so on the one hand, I think that people are talking about the apocalypse and the end days. And there's quite a lot of that millenarianism around. Mm. But on the other hand, I think you're right. And maybe it's because they do live in sight of their own mortality, that they have a sense of making the best of things and making mm. merry whilst they can. Um, you know, cakes and ale. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. In the last few years, I mean, obviously, there are terrible things going on in the world. But for most young people in the West, life is reasonably comfortable and survivable. They have all the mod cons and computers, whatever. But they sit at those computers making videos about how miserable they are. And you're tempted to say, well, you go back to the Tudor period and you'll know all about misery. And you'll also know about fresh air and eating organically and uh, locally and sustainably. Um, you probably might die in childbirth if you're a woman. There's a one in four chance. But, you know, meanwhile, you mm. can be happy. I mean, I think that when your life is about survival, then 
the vast majority of the time cannot be spent worrying about things that are at a higher level of order. <laughs> um, and perhaps yeah. we're, our survival needs are so well met that we have a lot of excess worry space. Yeah, that is a really interesting area of debate. And, you know, I, I've been uh, perhaps a little flippant about it. And we don't have time to go into it more here. But no, th- thank you so much, Susanna, at giving us that insight into the horrible <laughs> life of Tudor England. Count yourself lucky, folks. That's all we're saying. Yes, you're most welcome. <laughs> but you're still exploring it. I mean, what was it that first got you into the Tudors? Which period of history did you study at university? I think what first got me into it was I was allowed to put stickers of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I on my school books when I was 11. <laughs> and I did go to school at, at Nonsuch High School, which is where Nonsuch Palace used to be. So I always feel that there was something kind of preordained about it. I'd walk down Amberlynn's right. Way to school. Maybe it was always written. <laughs> I, I, actually, at university, I studied a lot of um, Indian history and I, I did study with a brilliant Tudor historian, Susan Brigden, um, but I had no intentions of working on that period. Uh, and then when I did eventually decide to do my doctorate, I did it on French history. But then when I finished that, uh, there was a job at Hampton Court and I applied for it and I got it and, you know, <laughs> the die was cast. <laughs> so <laughs> there was no way back. As I say, thank you so much for, for, for sharing all your knowledge and passion with us. And um, it's been great having a chat. Thank you. Most welcome. That was Susanna Lipscomb. Take a journey back to the past alongside her in her Visitor's Companion to Tudor England or read one of her many excellent books on this period and look out for the next episode of Willy Willy Harry Stee when we're going to get back to the monarchs. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023.